Hitting revenue targets is hard and requires constant hustle. Last quarter's success is already forgotten. Learn the mindset and tactics of today's most successful revenue producers in B2B marketing and sales. We call this the revenue hustle. I'm your host, Tom Hessen, navigating you on this journey. Today's show is sponsored by Nine Lenses, an interactive assessment platform that enables you to add instant value to your buyers and allows your sales team to tailor business conversations focused on the pain points each and every time. Check them out at NineLenses.com. So this is your host of The Revenue Hustle, Tom Hessen. I'm so excited to bring you my next guest on the podcast. It's Stephen D'Angelo. He is a partner at Boston Consulting Group and part of the Next Gen Sales Practice. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here and uh, participate. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I mean, I know you've got a really interesting background. Why don't you give us a little bit of a bio as to what you're doing now and and kind of a little bit about what you've been doing? Okay, great. So yeah, I've been in the uh, technology business really my whole career, the last two years doing lots of consulting with Boston Consulting Group. But before that, um, I really been an operator in the SaaS business, software business for over 30 years. So I've been a chief revenue officer several times where I've helped build a large global scalable sales teams. I've been president of a publicly traded company, CEO of an early stage company. So I know the ins and outs of the technology business quite well. I'm a go-to-market guy. You know, if you peel back who I am, I'm a a sales guy, a go-to-market person. And I bring that lens to the consulting I do. And as I built uh, SaaS companies and help companies be successful, it's always through that growth oriented Mm -hmm. kind of um, thinking. And then at BCG, what we do there at BCG, the next gen sales practice, is we come in and help companies that are typically 100 million in revenue and larger, where they see an opportunity to be transformed. They they recognize that their market's growing or maybe their market is stagnant. They need to transform their sales organization. They need to get to the next level. We do lots of analysis work and then best practices consulting. And then we also help a lot of private equity firms where they're doing due diligence on potential acquisitions or investments. We'll do due diligence for them to help them make the determination if they should invest or acquire. And then they'll bring us in afterwards to help transform the sales organization. So it's great that I've been able to take my many years of experience and now load it into into the consulting world. No, that's that's great. That's why I'm so excited for our conversation today. So you know how we do this, Stephen. We have revenue rules on the revenue hustle. So why don't you go ahead and tell us your first revenue rule? First revenue rule is sales leaders must define the success DNA of their sales reps. Okay, success DNA. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so um, let me define it first and then I'll give a bit of a story about it. But the success DNA is what are the specific behaviors and skills that your A players are dominant in. And that's what makes them A players. So defining what they are, creating really the preferred AE profile. Now, um, one of the things around this is the thesis that's proven itself over and over to be true is that an A player in one organization does not mean when they move to a new organization, they're going to be an A player. So if I'm an A player at SAP and I'm I'm a star, and then I get recruited by Oracle, Oracle thinks, well, I'm bringing an A player over. They're going to perform like an A player. How many of us over the years have gone out and hired stars from somewhere else, but they didn't perform like a star with us? And the reason is, 
is there's a gap between their DNA, the behaviors, the traits that they execute and their skills that they execute with what our A players are. We must define our A players and then we should recruit to that. And then we should also develop to that. So if I've got B and C players in my organizations, what if I was able to identify very specifically why they're B and C and what separates them from the A's? If I could do that, I then can now enable them and develop them to get them to perform more like A's. And I have seen the greatest companies do this very, very well. In my world, I've, I've been participated in two IPOs. Uh, I've been part of lots of companies, but two uh, public offerings I've gone through. We did this extremely well in those. Wow. And the other companies I, I consult in, those that really are high performing, they do this extremely well. Well, and I think it's interesting you know, because I get emails all the time, hire an A player, right? Like from a, a recruiter, a headhunter, like trying to um, source salespeople. So how did you first realize that an A player at company A is not an A player at company B? Was that just like firsthand experience or how did you kind of like first see that in the wild? Yeah, it, it, was, it's a, it was a blend of things. First, I thought I was a great hire. I only come to learn <clears throat> I wasn't so great. I was hiring A players, but they weren't performing well. So it was the observation, like I'm missing something here. <clears throat> and then the second thing, uh, the second way I've learned this is the first company that I was part of the IPO, the sales leader there, I give him all the credit. He would bring in an organizational psychologist to be part of the interview process and when a candidate was making it to the end and we all were giving them thumbs up or her thumbs up, they would go to the organizational psychologist who had a deeper perspective of what makes us tick. And he would come back to us and say, sorry, I wouldn't go with this guy. And we're like, what do you mean you wouldn't go with this guy? He's a perfect match. I, this woman here was, was better and this is why I would go with her. And it started to enlighten us, enlighten me. And so each time that I got involved in companies, I made sure that we did this. So it was a real game changer. It is a real game changer. We actually at BCG are rolling out a, an offering combined with technology to do this for companies because it's wow. such an important thing to hire more effectively and develop more effectively. Yeah. And, and I can, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because uh, there's a number of factors that go into someone's success, right? It could be the technology itself. It's, it's position in the marketplace. Um, not just that individuals, um, you know, it's a lot harder to sell at a startup than it is. I, I imagine it's someone that's got a big brand behind it, right? Just at the 50,000 foot view. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, what's, what's the maturity of your product or what's the maturity of your market? Who are the personas you sell to? How technical of a sale is it, right? There's so many variables that right. go into it. Hey, I like to think that, you know, I'm a, I'm a star salesperson, but am I going to be a star everywhere? I'm not. It's, it's about fitting. It's finding the right match. Yeah, and it seems so, uh, I don't know, obvious now when you say it, right? But, it, you know, I don't hear, hear this in the marketplace, Um so, I mean, do you have any thoughts as to why that is? Yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting. I think during, during growth times, it's less of a focus, but during times like today, uh, where it's more about profitable growth, and I'll explain more of that in a minute, it becomes more of a focus. So why is it not a focus when you're in high growth mode? When you're in high growth mode, the revenue team, see the CRO gets this big number from the CEO and the, and the CFO, and they know they're short on people. So now they have this big recruiting effort and time is of the essence. Right. 
The sooner I bring them in, the faster I get them ramped, and then they could be productive. So what do we end up doing? We end up cutting short the very thorough process. As much as we think we're being thorough, hey, I just interviewed Tom. Tom's great. I got to get him on board. I'm going to give him an offer, right? I cut corners a bit. So that's in essence what happens. And I think, again, those sales leaders, those enablement teams that take the time and recognize this and really put the diligence in, it may take them a little longer to fill the spots, but they're much more successful. Right. Right? The reason why I think it becomes more apparent now, uh, because today the VCs are telling all our clients at BCG, they're telling all their early mid-stage companies, late-stage companies, hey, focus on profitability. Cut your operating costs, manage it well. Oh, and by the way, you have to get more out of your salespeople. You right. can't just be churning. That churn and hire, churn and hire is a losing game. So now they're thinking more about this. They're being more cerebral about this and saying, okay, what can I do differently? And this, this idea of using behavioral science as part of it is intriguing for them. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting to me because um, how do you go and define what makes an A player an A player at a specific client? Yeah, so the most rudimentary way would be simply as a sales leader or a group of sales leaders, say your CRO and some of your division vice presidents, you pick a team and you just kind of go off and spend a few hours and map it out. Let, let's talk about all the people, Mary Jones, Joe Jones, who are all the people that are A's? Let's map them out. What do they do differently? Like it's a rudimentary approach, but they could, if they spend several hours doing it and then re-looking at it and re-looking at it again, they could come up with, hey, these are the attributes we're looking for. This is the kinds of things that we should be interviewing for. So that's a rudimentary approach, but I certainly encourage organizations to do this. Spend the time mm. just like they should be creating the preferred prospect profile. Who should we be selling to? They should be doing the preferred salesperson profile. So that's one way. Another way, the other end of the spectrum is what we're doing at BCG is to really, um, really create a, a scientific way of doing this through profiling your A players, profiling your existing B and C players through behavioral science, through surveys. Uh, we do a survey questionnaire. We're also looking at actually using <clears throat> kind of the meta environment to put a salesperson in a mm -hmm. environment where it's um, where they can actually behave and go through various kinds of scenarios to identify what their dominant behavioral traits are, what their tendencies are, you know, kind of a virtual reality environment. Right, right. That. So that's a much more scientific way to do it, which is much more accurate because now we very clearly define these are the things your A player share. If I profile a B player to this A player, I could very clearly say, here's where they're consistent and here's where they're not consistent. And as a sales leader, part of your job is coaching. You should be coaching on these three or four things, because if you do that with this person, you're going to get them to perform more like the A player. So again, you could do it the rudimentary right. way. I encourage it, or you could do it a more scientific way. Oh, and I have to say, this is very different than personality tests. There's lots of tests yeah. that are out there, like DISC to show you dominant personality traits. They're good, but they don't focus on very specific sales behaviors that are required in your organization, your DNA of success. And what are some just common 
behaviors or attributes that you are just modeling, right? Or, or evaluating, like their negotiating skills, their communication, like just give us a, you know, four or five attributes that are commonly evaluated, whether it's good or bad, but just yeah. what are some common <clears throat> attributes? Um, one, let me, let me, let me mention one and talk about it a little bit, because this is one that's really intriguing to me. This idea of need for harmony. This is one of the attributes that we measure. So need for harmony, someone that has a need to be liked, someone that not comfortable breaking glass, not disagreeing. They don't like to disagree because it makes them feel uncomfortable. So some people, you know, it doesn't, it's not right or wrong. It's just what you, who you are. Some people have a strong need and some people, they like to fight and they have a very low need. So when you look at an account manager role, right? Someone that has to go and preserve an account and service an account Typically, when we do profiles there, they have a larger need for harmony. When you look at an AE for an early stage company, right, that AE needs to be innovative, challenging, bring a unique perspective. They typically would have a lower need for harmony. When you do the profile, you see it works out that way. So it's very interesting when you look at a profile of a salesperson and the A players are, let's say, on a zero to 10 scale, they're a two to a five need for harmony, rather low, but this person's a nine, right? Okay, we know that we're gonna have a right. challenge here. So, right. so that's one. Uh, ethics is another one. Communication skills, collaboration skills, work ethic. Those are the kinds of things mm. that we look at. Awesome. And, and so do you feel that, I guess some of those things may be things you can train or coach some things you can't like I guess that need for harmony is an example of like that's just their their makeup I mean I guess maybe you can coach them a little bit but they're never going to change you know yeah. to that degree let's say so this is the very very good debate um and the way we differentiate it is personality you're not going to change but behaviors you can you can my, I, mean, I have two children, like when they were adolescents, right? They had their personality, but my job as a good parent was how do I coach them to behave differently, right? Well, so now here we are in the sales world. Yes, we can take that person that's got a high need for harmony and explain to them that's okay, but also understand that RA players, they'll say no to prospects. When that prospect says, oh, by the way, you got to deliver this proposal in 24 hours, RA players will say, well, we'll time out a minute. I've got a lot of things that I've got to get done. Tell me why this 24 hours is so required, right? They'll push back. So we could coach this other player. Mm -hmm. It's okay to challenge a prospect from time to time. Oh, and by the way, not only is it okay, it's a requirement for you to be successful because our eight players do this. And then it's ongoing observation and coaching and mentoring. So behaviors can indeed be adjusted. Am I going to move that person from a nine need for harmony to a one? Probably not. Right. Am I going to be able to move them a few notches? Absolutely. Got it. And how do, what's the reaction from reps themselves or sales managers? You know, some of this may be like, oh, this is a bunch of hocus pocus or, or, you know what I mean? Or I don't, I don't like being evaluated and, and, you know, yeah. I don't know, just what, what are some of the reactions you're getting from yeah. Yeah. the teams so, and management? Yeah. So let's first talk about the reaction we get from people that are being quote unquote profile, right? That they're being, the, the survey they're taking or they're being observed, the reality is, is we're doing this so that we can help you be more successful because we're going to identify and share the results with you as to how you compare 
with the A players. And those areas where there's gaps, we're going to help you fill them so you can be more successful, make more money, mm. achieve the goals you want, be more happy, right? We're, we're, it's a positive thing. Now to your question about the leaders. Um, it really depends on the leader's belief. There are sales leaders that believe I only want A players. And if, you, if you're not, I'm firing you. I'm going to find the next one. I'm seeing less and less of that. I'm seeing more and more, and I give it to the younger generation of, of salespeople that are moving into leadership. Maybe they're a little more touchy-feely. I, I don't know how to put it, but they are interested in development. And they recognize that part of their role and responsibility as a sales leader is to be a coach, a mentor. Part of just, just like a sports coach. Part of my job is not just put the right players in the right spots, but now I've got to coach them. I've got to work with them day in, day out. And we're seeing more and more of the sales leaders are believing in that and we're helping them achieve that. And so can you share just a couple of, you know, just stories that, uh, that just kind of where you've taken a client through this process and, and um, you know, I guess you also have to translate that into a hiring need, right. Or you have to then test for these things. So we haven't talked about that, but um, yeah, I'm just curious just kind of how you've seen this play out. Yeah. So um, I'll leave the, the company nameless. Um, just for confidentiality reasons, but uh, we are working on a with a, a client right now. Actually, the call I was on just before this call is we're finishing up uh, the results of the transformation analysis we've done, and part of it is looking at the sales organization. And overall, only forty two percent of the team makes made their quota the last year. Right, low number. Um, so we started looking at why is that a hiring problem? Is it a product problem? Is it you know? There's all things we look right. at. So we ran them through this model and we showed them, well, first off, this is what your A players look like. Okay, this is the criteria you need to have. Now let's look at some of the, one of your reps that the year before made the number, but this year didn't make his, his or her number. We did, we profiled everyone, but in, in this one case, we said, okay, look at the differences here between this person and this person. Let's model them. Let's now coach and counsel them and let's start seeing some results. Now we don't have the results yet, because we're in the beginning phase of that. Previous example I'll give you is where we went through this entire thing. Mm -hmm. We were able to move the, the total number of people making their number. It was like mid 60s. I forget the exact number to over 75%. So wow. when you talk about an ROI that they've achieved, right? A significant ROI. So um, it requires diligence. It requires time. It requires the mentality that I know I'm going to make a difference here, but the results are great. Yeah, because this is really isn't a one-time effort uh, for the company. This is like a, a right. buying into an approach of how we, you know, hire, train, coach, right, for, for the foreseeable future, right? Exactly right. This is part now of your DNA. We said DNA of success. This is now part of the, the sales organization DNA. Oh, and by the way, now let's do it to account managers. Let's do it with mm -hmm. SDRs. How about we do with customer success people? Right. So now we start really optimizing the human performance. And we know any great company that has great success has great people that are performing really well. And we're helping them do that. Now, that's fascinating. I think that brings a lot more um, rigor and, you know, a, a more repeatable, structured process to what is historically more of a, you know, hiring is just kind of a difficult under any circumstance, right? I think sales is even harder because you're measuring a number of different variables, like you said. So I think this is really fascinating. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing that. So Stephen, what's your second revenue rule? Second revenue rule. 
uh, sales reps that win most often pick the right deals. So sales rep pick deals. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So if I look at any of the reps that I that have worked for me over the years, and even when I was a rep and I was a great performer, it was all about where am I going to invest my time, right? That's all we have is our time. And as salespeople, if I have a skinny pipeline, what am I encouraged to do? I'm encouraged to chase you know, bad deals, if you will. What's a bad deal? Well, the prospect's major pain is really not addressed by our solution the best, or the, you know, they really don't have their budget in place, but I'll still chase this thing down, right? The great salespeople, they really understand their preferred prospect profile. They know what needs to be in place. Certainly there's the qualification stuff of medic and med pick and all those kinds of things, but, but there is, there's more of a profile around what problem do we solve the best in the world, right? If they have that problem, how much do they know they have that problem? All these things we have to look at to say, okay, this one is worth me spending time on. And I used to joke with my sales team. I used to say to them, rather than waste your time chasing bad deals, I'd rather you go play golf, right? Go play golf. And that was kind of the thing I always used. Now, of course, I'd rather them work than go play golf. But my point is, I'd rather have you go do something that's fun than chase these two or three deals because there's no chance we're going to win these two or three deals, right? So why are we wasting time? Now, part of this is they need sales leaders to think like I think and CEOs to think like I think, because sometimes, and I'm seeing this with one particular company that uh, I'm consulting with BCG, um, I had acted as their CRO until we brought in someone in to to be that head of sales. They're desperate. They're an early company. They're chasing business. They raised money. They got, and they, they're the, the top of the, the top of the leadership team is, is forcing the salespeople to go chase these deals. And we're like, with well, time out that you're wasting a lot of money and wasting a lot of time. So you, 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 you really need to have that discipline and you have to understand that it's better that I invest my team to go after the right deals and have the best chance to win. It sounds so darn obvious, but it, it, it doesn't happen as often as it needs to be. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, as an, as an, you know, growing, um, software company kind of on the small side, you know, I've learned how important product market fit is. And if, if you don't have it as a company, your sales people will not be able to sell a thing, right? It's, it's like you're selling, you don't you don't even know what you're selling at sometimes, right? Or you're selling it to the wrong persona. Like there's just a lot of inefficient learning the product market fit. Um, And if you don't have that dialed in, you are in, in trouble as the CRO all the way down to your reps. Cause you don't know who to talk to, right. That may be part of right. the, um, yeah. but then there's the, these other behaviors too. Like just, I need, I need to show my leadership. I've got funnel. Um, and I, you know, there's other, you know, exactly. Strange things. Yeah. But I'm just kind of curious, like your, your thoughts on this. Yeah. You get a full sense of security, right? I need a funnel. I have to show my team that I've got a good pipeline. So I'm going to put a bunch of stuff in there and I may not be doing it in a mischievous way. Like I'm just going to try to pull the wool over their eyes. It's, it's more right. like, you know, rose colored glasses, right? There's lots of hope and we all know hope is not a strategy, but that's what's, what's playing in the game. And then to your point about product market fit, there's absolutely no question that's numero uno, especially for an early stage company. Yeah. Let's be honest with ourselves and know what our strengths and our weaknesses are. Um, there's a company that I was helping 
All they said was we got the best product in the industry, best product in the industry. The last five losses I went through and did the lost analysis, lost analysis for. And guess what? The competition had better product, right? Okay, so timeout, right? And, and they were very specific as to where the product was better. And, and they were very consistent, by the way. So mm-hmm. five different companies, five very similar reasons why this product was weak. So now this is a timeout. It's like, okay, let's stop kidding ourselves. And why don't we just face the brutal facts and look at where our product is weak and let's fix that and let's get the right product market fit so that we can now tell our sales team and our pre-sales team, this is what we're looking for. Let's go find those. All right. Now, now we're using our time wisely. Oh, and by the way, I probably need less salespeople. That's a whole nother thing. When you look at sales and operating costs, you have all these salespeople chasing all these bad deals and you look at the percentages of them that are one. I'd rather have a smaller sales team, lower cost, higher performing, makes tons of sense. But again, you have to have that discipline. Yeah. And I think there's, I mean, I, 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 just from my own just perspective, I, I, believe there's been a lot of CROs, sales leaders, sales people that have been sacrificed on that altar of bad product market fit. Because, you know, you raise all that money and you've got to go drive the top line. And so if the top line's not there, well, then it must be something with sales. It's you. You're the CRO. It's your fault. I, I, it's so funny you say that because I talk to all my CRO fan, friends and I'm like, you know, we're like sports coaches, right? We're like the, an NFL coach. Today, I'm a genius. I won the Super Bowl and next year I didn't and it's me. Oh, it, it, it's not the new GM. It's not that I got, you know, seven people got hurt and, you know, I had to use my second stringers. Right. And that's what happens in the, in the software world without yeah. question. The C-level, the board, it, it's the CRO's fault. Right. And sometimes it is no question. We have to be you know, held accountable. But but more often than not, as you've accurately said, they've been sacrificed because of the poor product market fit. Yeah, and that those are hard lessons, right? I mean, I think yeah. um, there's only so many levers to pull in the time frame that you have, right? It's like you can't fire your quarterback that you just signed to a 150 million dollar deal, but it's it's a whole lot easier to you know to to change coaches, right? Yeah. And and see if they can make some something of the situation. Um, but you know, in terms of like the sales reps picking their deals, um, again, is that kind of going back to just experience and and you know i suspect going back to our first part the a players are probably better at evaluating which ones to say yes to and which ones to say no to yeah so first it's a culture thing so mm-hmm. i often used to tell my sales team i when i get a phone call from a prospect uh that they're unhappy with you because you won't pursue their deal or you won't do it their way it's okay right i, I like when i get those calls because again that tells me you're challenging the status quo, which is really important. So it's a culture thing that I say as the CRO or as the president, hey, it's okay to walk from opportunities, right? Now let's not walk from the, the wrong ones where we gotta we have to have the discipline. But first culturally, it's okay to do it. That's the first thing. But then yes, we have to enable them. You know, I often say in my leadership principles, accountability is one of the key ones, but right behind that one is enablement. If I'm going to hold you accountable, then I have to enable you. I have to put the right training in place so that it's fair, right? So if I'm going to say to you, pick the right deals, I now have to tell you what that means, right? I have to enable you that if, if the deal has this profile, right, then we're going after these. And candidly, every time we do deal reviews, we're going to ask you to check the boxes of how many of these boxes do you think this deal 
matches, uh, yeah, right? right. And, and, we're, and you may have like all seven of them checked and we're like, wait, time out a minute. These two shouldn't be checked, right? Because we're, we're doing a healthy deal process review. Um, so it's a culture thing. It's a requirement that we define what it is and we enable them. And then again, as part of the culture, we spread this out throughout the whole organization that the A players do this well, and we have to continue all to do this well in order really to optimize. Now, do you think that that inherently means an A player or the person who picks the right deals is working on fewer deals? Yes. Yes, they are. They absolutely are. They're working on fewer deals, so their time's more concentrated on the ones that are most likely to close, right? So, you know, eggs are more in their basket, like in a small number of baskets. And so does that mean like maybe the overall pipeline may shrink? So if you were to introduce this concept as a consultant or, you know, you get hired Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you see that pipe, total pipe number come down. Yes. You have to somehow quantify the quality, right? As some other alternative metric or, or that is like, that is correct. So I'm just kind of curious, like how that's. Yeah. How now, that now, plays now there's an important thing to say about working fewer deals. Yes, they are. But it really also then depends on what's the market segment you're in. Are you a mid-market player and you close 5,000 deals a year? Or are you an enterprise player and you're close 100 deals a year, right? So at right. first it depends. Right. Um, but for the most part, for the most part, yes, you'll be working, you'll be working less deals. And so when you introduce this, when I introduced this as, as a hiring CRO, you know, when I was younger as a hiring CRO, I was so enamored by the opportunity, you go after it, and then you get burnt a few times. And then part of my interview process with you, say the CEO, you want to hire me as the CRO. I want to see where your head's at on this one, because I'm sharing with you that I'm probably going to dwindle your pipeline a bit once we both figure out what's the right preferred prospect profile. And I want to know you're okay with it before I come in the door, right? Right, This is our game plan, right? So I have to set the right expectation. But then to also to your point, I then am required to define to you, this is why we're going after these deals. And this is why we're not going after these other ones. And you should check me. You should check and balance me as my CEO to make sure that I'm doing this well. And doing that over and over instills confidence in you and support in you. And then of course you start seeing us win deals um, and there's less surprises, right? The worst thing a CEO, a CFO or a board wants are surprises. So whether you have less surprises when you're doing this and bad news and good news gets to you much faster. Yeah. And I think you bring people along with you, right? Cause it's not just what you're doing as sales leadership off in some vacuum. Like again, who's an ideal target or what is a good deal? That should be a leadership team decision, right? Not in marketing, CEO, sales, you know, maybe CFO from a, you know, margin and, and other things standpoint, but that should be customer a- Customer success. Customer, customer success, success yes. Right, yeah, sure, yeah. That should not just be a decision made off, um, like that should Absolutely. be something you're, again, because everyone's got to buy into that, right? I yeah. mean, otherwise you're- yeah. So, so it reminds me of one time I was doing this. I, I was, um, I was a VP of worldwide sales for this company and we were doing this as a team, as a sales leadership team. And the CEO founder came in and he was known to be a, a rough around the edges kind of guy. And he said, what are you doing here? And I explained what we're doing here. And he said, you know, this is BS. We have such a great product. Everybody needs our product. Stop doing this. Just go out. And I'm like, oh, oh boy, we're, I'm in trouble. <laughs> we're, we're in trouble here, you know? And then, of course, it, it took me lots of coaching one-on-one 
um, over a few cocktails to say, this is why we got to be doing this and ultimately got them to buy in. Uh, yeah. I mean, that is a, at that stage, it's hard, right. As a CRO, just because there's so many different variables, founder being one of them, um, product market fit, the product itself. Um, so no, I, I can totally appreciate that, but thank you for sharing that. Those are great. Uh, so Steven, two things, how'd you get into sales? And I want to come back and talk to you about your book. Um, tell me about how you got into sales. Yeah. So part of it was my DNA. You know, I, I was the one that was when I was played little league or for basketball team, I sold the most candy. I got all of those awards. I, I don't know. It's biggest part of my background. When I look at some of my aunts and uncles that were salespeople, um, I guess I got it in me. And then truthfully, uh, there was the economic side. I, I learned early on that if you're really good at sales, you make, you make a lot of money. And I was fortunate to do very well economically. And, um, you know, I came from middle-class family, hardworking family, great family. Um, and I always wanted more. So sales was one way to get there. And then it was the competitive side of me. Mm. Um, I played sports as, as a, as a kid growing up and I'd like the competition and winning and losing and sales was that way. One of my first sales jobs, other than selling cookware door to door, I sold men's clothing in a nice, very nice men's clothing store in a, in a mall. And, you know, every, every person that came in was a game. Am I going to win this one? Am I going to lose right. this? Right. And I just really liked it. And then thank, thank goodness coming out of college, I started work for ADP and ADP was a great place because they kick the crap out of you. They really grind you. You learn the grind, you learn the disciplines, they train you. And I was very fortunate to spend several years with ADP as my first job into the tech world. And, uh, and it's been fantastic. Moved into leadership, like I said, two IPOs and helped sell a few other companies. It's been, been a lot of fun. I've been very, very fortunate. And I'm very fortunate that I've worked alongside a lot of very smart people, a lot of great people that mentored me, taught me along the way. And I like to do that as well. Well, I can see why that's a, a valuable background to have as a consultant, you know, versus those that are... Um you know, that have worked for, let's just say a consulting firm or BCG from when they were right out of college, right? And just have experience right. on that side of the fence only, right? Versus where you were predominantly on the operator side now, you know, kind of a uh, a second career as a, as a consultant. I mean, what's it like being on the consultant side? Yeah, it's actually a lot of fun. And you know, the, you, you, you described it really well. When you look at the majority of people at BCG, they are very, very smart, analytical consultants, extremely smart. You look at the schools that they've come from, they're, they're fantastic, but they're consultants. I bring the operator's perspective to it. And we make a great team. Each time that we engage with our clients, they bring all of this data, all the analytics and all the, all of the, the kinds of uh, ideas around transformation. And then as the operator and the client knows I was an operator, okay, this is kind of how I'm seeing it. And the CRO really connects with me. The yeah. CEO connects with me, and and we make a great team. It's it's worked out very well. The next gen sales team, uh, Philip Anderson, who leads it, he's built a great organization of a blend of people like me and people like consultants, and it, and it works really great. And I enjoy it. You know, you're kind of giving back. And I I, I always told the I, I I tell BCG, you know, if I get that next operator role, that's another potential grand slam. I I may be, I may go back into the <laughs> to the other back side. Back in the game. Yeah, but until then, this is really a lot of fun. Awesome. So you're a recent author. Tell us about that. I am. Yep. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I published a book called The Single Day of Peace. I published that about a year and a half ago. Um, it's an inspirational novel to help people live a more happy and successful life. And it really came out of 
my business world, right? So a quick uh, story about this, you know, working alongside of many successful people, billionaires, uh, and those of which who were very happy and those that candidly were not very happy. And you're like saying, well, how can somebody that has so much money, so much success, you know, whether they're a billionaire, whether they're an athlete, whatever, not be happy. And I saw there's lots of them. And I used right. to start taking, you know, notes as to what did the happy people do differently than the unhappy people? So I had all this info and I said, you know, I'd love to write a book. I was a big reader for, on success stuff as I was growing in my career. I said, I'd love to write a book. I have this spirituality slant to me and, and I think religion could be more effective in helping us all grow. So I combined this idea of a great leader and this idea of success principles. And I created this fictitious novel about a business person that moves out of business leadership into spiritual leadership and how he transforms his following. And I, and I input all of these principles of the happy, successful people throughout the the out the book and then then it ends with these 50 principles that if you live by these you're going to live a more happy and successful life so it was a fun thing to do i really enjoyed it getting great feedback from people that read it is always fulfilling um it took me six years to write it oh man busy business life yeah right it's very fulfilling very very fulfilling so so what what's your faith background my faith background is I'm a Catholic. I call myself a rebel Catholic. So I use the, the Catholic religion okay. as the foundation. And um, I'm still Catholic, but I challenge some of the things that go on in the Catholic church that this leader challenged. And um, it's been read by Buddhists, Jewish community. And they all say to me, you know, Steve, you use the Catholic community as your subject, but it applies to us too. Right, the right. That you write about are great. Yeah. But that was that that's my faith growing up and raised my children Catholic and I I'm still a practicing Catholic. Awesome. No, I think that's um, you know, I think the first book I ever read was Five Dysfunctions of a Team that was written kind of in that novel approach to business. I, I just was like, this is the coolest thing ever, because usually it's more just, you know, stories of do this, don't do that. And, exactly. and to put it into a story, I thought was just um. And I have to say, I stole the idea. I did. One of my favorite books is The Greatest Salesman in the World by Og Mandino. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was lucky that a cousin of mine, when I was in college, coming out, getting my job with ADP, said, read this book. It, it also has a spiritual slant, but it's all about a story. And there's 10 principles that if to be the greatest salesman in the world, live by these 10 principles. So I, I can't take full credit for the idea. Lots of books have been written this way, but that was the first one that I was exposed to. And uh, it's a great book. I encourage everybody listening to this podcast to read The Greatest Salesman in the World. It's a, it's a fantastic story. Okay. Well, I'm going to put links to both those books in the show notes. So okay. I'll make sure I get yeah, it um, on Amazon. I guess just send me yes. a link. I'll, I'll, I'll add it there. But um, where can we follow you online, Stephen? Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn, of course, um, Stephen D'Angelo. Um, you can email me. My email is d'angelo.steven at bcg.com. Um, those would be the two places, or you can even go to my website, the book, a single day of peace, and you could contact me right through my website. So a single day of peace.com. And, um, if you want to buy the book there or contact me, uh, that's an easy way to get me. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the, the revenue hustle and sharing two rules, which uh, were very unique. We haven't talked about both of those. So that was, uh, awesome. Fantastic. Um, so thank you for having me. It's great. Yeah. Let's do it again soon. Love to, love to. Thanks. Appreciate it, Tom. You bet. Thank you for tuning in to The Revenue Hustle. This episode has been brought to you by Nine Lenses. 
close more deals with interactive assessments. Check them out at ninelenses.com. See you next time.